Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. On today's episode of Chatting Tracks. I never really felt destructively jealous, but I was, I was, I was kind of, I was pretty envious of it, admittedly, because, because after all, when we started out, that was the, that was the, that was the model that we were striving for. And I think Brian and I first collaborated on Step On Me, which was, uh, is that on, is that on the Smile album? It is, yeah. It is, God blimey. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, and doing all right. Yeah, I think if anything, I think the problem with that was that it was too eclectic. There were t- the, the 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 variety of songs was too difficult. Chatting tracks. Let's talk music. Hello, hello, and welcome to Chatting Tracks. It's me, Rob the Face Radio Burgess. Welcome along. Let's talk music. Let's talk music, indeed. And welcome to today's episode. Before I get on to today's guest, a massive thank you to everyone that's liked and subscribed on the YouTube channel and is um, subscribed to the podcast. Thank you so much. It really helps me out, and it just spreads this music community that we're building. And it's definitely getting bigger thanks to you. So thank you so much for that. Anyway, today's guest, I've got the amazing Tim Staffel. When Queen came around when I was a kid, I, I fell in love with Queen almost straight away. I, I got the video box set of the greatest hits and I was instantly hooked on the songs and I had to find out more and about who they were. Eventually, you know, when you get into a band, you find out about the, the people that have been in the band. Tim Staffel was in a band called Smile, which is a precursor to Queen. Now, Tim's name was always floating around and I knew of him, but I didn't know much about him. And, you know, as you get on, you get books, you read about things and the internet comes around, you can start hearing more stuff. Tim is more than a footnote in the Queen's story. He's a fantastic singer, he's a fantastic songwriter, and he's an all-round lovely bloke. At the end of this episode, he's allowed me to play a track from his new album, Wayward Child, called Everybody Surrenders. It's a fantastic song. I hope you like the interview. Tim's a lovely fella, and I meet a lot of people doing this show, and he's probably one of the nicest I've ever met. Anyway, I'll see you in the next one. Enjoy. Growing up, was your house quite musical when you was a kid? Was your parents into music? Well, my dad, God bless him, God rest his soul, He's been gone a long time now. I'm the same age as, as he was when he went. He fancied himself a music lover, but his, but the kind of music he liked to listen to w- was totally an- anathema to me because he liked listening to James Last and uh, this, this rather insipid organist called Klaus Wunderlich. And, and I mean, he did like cinema organ and that, uh, and I, I actually, I actually will, will sign up to that, you know, but, but I, I, I didn't feel that his music, you know, at least he could have, at least he could have been into bebop or something, you know, but I'm absolutely not. He was, he was, a he was, a, a I think my dad was a lightweight as far as musical appreciation was concerned. My mum, what my mum, my mum's main comment would have been about anything like that. Oh, that's nice, dear. <laughs> no, and but that isn't to say she wasn't intelligent. She she wasn't. She was actually more intelligent than my dad, but but bright in the sense that she just knew. I shouldn't say she knew her place. She she just knew what was diplomatic and what wasn't. You know, and that so she was. She so she was very cool. She imparted more good sense to me than my dad did, I believe. And it wasn't a musical household, except for the fact that we had a, a radiogram early on, and I used to have seventy-eight RPM records. 
Wow. So did dad. And, and you know, that was the old kind where you'd put this uh, horribly abrasive needle onto the, onto the disc, which was effectively an acetate, like a, like a later version of an acetate master, you know. And if the, and if the needle was a bit sharp, you'd get a little spiral of plastic or paper <laughs> coming out of the grooves as it chewed it up. But that was okay. And actually, my dad did figure out a way. I don't know how he managed it. Dad worked out a way to get it to run at 48. So mm. we played singles on it. But we, instead of playing them with a nice high-fidelity needle, we played them with that horrible you know, <laughs> thing and it and it, it ruined the records but at least we could listen to them but yeah yeah gone sorry it didn't, say you could you could only listen to them once but yeah <laughs> pretty much but but even but the 78s didn't suffer because it was there that was what they that was re, you know that's pretty much what they did i mean my first the first couple of records i bought were i bought a 78 of johnny duncan and the bluegrass boys singing last train to san fernando and I also had a, I've never been able to find this since. In fact, three, there were three 78s that I remember mostly. The other one was Lonnie Donegan singing the Ballad of Gunga Din. <laughs> and I've never been able to find that. I can, the only thing I can think of is that maybe I'm mistaking, maybe I'm making a mistake with my memory and it wasn't Lonnie Donegan. And, it, and the third one was uh, some strange comedy record called Pop-Eyed Pete. <laughs> I haven't been able to find any evidence of that either anywhere. <laughs> Popeye Pete had great big feet and his shoes were 23. <laughs> Can you believe it? You think I'm nuts. I probably am. No, but anyway, that, that was, that was, um, that was, uh, that, those are genuine memories from those days from the old 78 radiogram. And, and then, and then of course we did, I did eventually get given a, uh, a, a, like a dancette clone. I mean, mm. you know, a, a, an auto ch- Garrard auto changer. You know, that would do singles, and and then then I started to buy forty fives. I think my first my first forty five was oh God Return to Sender. I think. Oh, nice. Yeah, and then and then Runaway, Del Shannon, and I mean that was that was my introduction to 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 kind of to being a to being a record consumer you know was there was was 45s of, of that of that era it didn't last very long because i got i discovered and got pretty quickly seduced by the blues and the, what was it there was a there was a shop in kingston i can't remember the name of it but it was a, a record shop which had a, a a really good blues and jazz section early on in early 60s, 61, 62, something like that. And I, and I used to go to Kingston quite a lot and, and, and buy, I mean, EPs, I'd buy, I bought quite a few EPs. I, I must have bought, I must have bought a load of, well, it was Pie International, red and yellow label, you know, that. Mm, yeah. Bo Diddley EPs. I think I bought a couple of Bo Diddley EPs. And I would, and I was, was Chuck Berry on Pie International? I don't think he was. No, I don't think he was either. I can't remember. But but anyway, it was it was it was Chuck Berry and and the and the early kind of crossover blues artists that I first got into, mm. and then started to dive a bit deeper into the more the more ethnic stuff. 
which which kind of it kind of set it set a precedent that I that I never really escaped from, even during the rock years. Mm. I was always to be honest with you, I was always slightly dissatisfied with with the rock idiom. What because it because I it, it I, I didn't quite know why until until I realized that it 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 was deviating from the from the idea of a groove. Mm. You know, it really was. I, I, I maintain that to this day that that the thing about English rock, a lot of English rock was that it I mean not not that this is not that this discounts it completely, but it it wasn't necessarily all about groove. Yeah. And 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 I'm a, I think the blues originally seduced me into into wanting to hear a groove, you know. And I think that I think that was that was a kind of a it was it it started off as a as a mild infection which was with me all through the rock years and then it re re resurfaced in a kind of like a kind of shingles <laughs> at, at, as a as a desire in the late sixties to want to be playing groove more groove music, you know. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's that's kind of significant in the in the progress that I've made or haven't made, if you like. I mean, were you a Yardbirds fan? Uh, yes and no. I, yeah, well, actually, I, I was at the time, but I'm not so much now because when I listen back, I mean, yes, I was because we used to do covers. We used to do Yardbirds covers in the in the band 1984, and uh, but uh, but I I I don't. I don't dig it so much now, but then what, but then why would you, you know, if you, if you move on in your life, it, it doesn't necessarily negate anything you liked when you were younger. It just means that it, it, it's not calling to you anymore, you know, and it, mm. it, it, it doesn't really, some bands, some bands survive that, that retrograde scrutiny and some don't. For me, the Yardbirds don't. In some ways, the Stones do. Mm. You know, I, I I think. I mean, and the I the part of the reason for that is that I think one thing is that the Stones have always been about the groove. Yeah, they really have always been about the groove. In fact, one of the few English bands that really understood what groove was was Charlie Watts. You know, mm. and I I I say it's because of the because of his jazz, um, his jazz roots that that he he knew. You know, and some of those, some of those Stones tracks. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Little Red know. Rooster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, you know, I'm thinking more of the, in that, that, you know, that the, the things like, um, Honky Tonk Women and, and, and Brown Sugar, you know, just, just solid grooves, you know, I mean, yeah. Especially, um, Tumbling Dice. When you get to Tumbling Dice, that's, no, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That's another, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, who else? I mean, bands like the Who were strange. They they were kind of on the fence because they they did understand groove because because although Keith Moon was all over the place, he still had this. He still understood groove, and uh, I mean, there are a lot of stuff. I mean, Tommy d didn't didn't bother itself with with being that 
that attached to the idea of groove is the fundamental underpinning of the tune. Mm. But but things like generation and who are you and, and all of those, I mean, yeah, you know. I always think when you refer to the blues and the who, it's the blues with the jet engine under it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yes, good, good, uh, a good analogy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because you go this quite. This is quite nice, bluesy, and then moon comes in and it's all over. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they probably they probably got more groovy as the years have gone by since Mooney mm. was replaced. Because yeah. because uh, because later drummers who have they got now? Zach Starkey, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Later drummers, I think, were probably probably more conditioned by the idea because groove the idea of groove this is me i mean other people could be could listen to this afterwards and say that is an utter load of cods mate (laughs) they might be right you know but it's only my opinion you know you make up you make up these opinions of things and you think they're (laughs) correct because they they seem to link everything together in in a sort of logical and 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 consensual sort of way but i mean Drummers who were who who didn't arise until the seventies, especially talking about drummers, they had the sixties to they had the sixties as as legacy conditioning. You know, mm. we didn't. We we had we had the fifties as legacy conditioning, mm. and and whatever we picked up on them was what informed what we did going forward. And and that and as later generations have moved on, I I reckon bands have got and better and better and better and better and better. I mean, uh, right at the moment, I when I think about a band like, say, Snarky Puppy. Do you know Snarky Puppy? No. God, those players—they're just unbelievable. And you think, oops, <laughs> you know, I don't. I, I don't find myself in a studio with them being asked to play play some guitar or some some bass because i'm afraid i wouldn't be able to hack it you know (laughs) they are just unbelievably good you know but uh like like jacob collier you you Mm. know you must know jacob collier yeah lord what what, you know what what's happened you know (laughs) so when when did you pick up your first guitar and who was your guitar influence when you were learning would it be blues again i i I probably you see i was a singer and and i i always wanted to be a singer i and I only really got hold of a guitar at a point where I thought, "Ooh, I'd better, I'd better have a way that I can accompany myself." Because mm. you know, if I if I suddenly don't have a band, what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> so I I I must have picked up an acoustic guitar mid sixties, maybe sixty four, maybe sixty three, and you know, just and learned the rudimentary chords. I suppose I got I got better. I did get better at it, and in fact, you know, I I, I got at least as good. I, I got at least as good enough to be able to swap to bass legitimately. I mean, I was never a great bass player, but I was I was competent. You know, I was I was capable up to a certain level, and that and that was because I'd played guitar and I knew I knew most of the chords and I knew most of the root notes of the chords and I knew most of the scales and and the and and that stuff so and and guitar heroes i think it, it it's got to be the early blues men i mean i think otis rough 
used to be a really great hero of mine. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that he strung the guitar the wrong way around and played, <laughs> played it upside down. And, and I used to love his, um, I loved the way, and of course, Clapton. I was never, I, oh God, I probably, I probably, this is probably committing professional suicide to say this. So I was never a massive fan of Jeff Beck. Mm. Not right even up to the end. I, I, it clearly an amazing guitar player, clearly a great, great guitar player. He just didn't speak to me, you know, that's all I can say about that. Uh, oh, cause I liked, I liked, I liked Clapton. God, I did like Clapton. I, I think, I think he suffered. I think he suffered because of his drug habit because, you know, the Beano album, his guitar playing on the Beano album to me remains probably the best he's ever done. And he was, he was still good in cream after his rehab, after Ocean Boulevard 451, I thought was showed a, a marked deterioration in inventiveness. Mm. And I, to a certain extent, I think he's clawed himself back a bit. He's, he's all, he's a bit better now. now. And well, he, he's, he's a lot better now. <laughs> um, but he was, he was a, a you know, he, I, I, I loved his playing and, and actually Brian as well, you mm. know, Brian was a huge influence. I mean, not that I can play, not that I play in that style or not that I played according to that style, but you know, well, Brian is in a genre of one, <laughs> nobody liked Brian, you know, nobody with no, no rock player with such sensitive to melodic take on 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 stuff i reckon i don't know i mean the, the only other re- rock guitar player i really dig to be honest with you is eddie van halen uh, uh you know and uh but there's so many of them who are just just shredders who, who don't go anywhere you know yeah which and it's and it's incredibly clever christ i wish i could i wish i could impress people by shredding <laughs> Like, I mean, I wish I was Nuno Betancourt, for instance, but unfortunately not. But yeah, but you know, but I don't, I don't particularly like listening to to it unless it's got that lyrical, that lyrical underpinning, like Brian does, like like actually, like Eddie Van Halen does, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd take Peter Green over Yuri Malmsteen any day of the week. So it's <laughs> oh, me too, absolutely, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, when it when it comes to blues players, different matter altogether. Mm. I mean, I suppose Peter Green was an influence, and later on, of course, because of the connection, Snowy was mm. Snowy White. I liked Albert King. I mean, God, I still do. I still play Born Under a Bad Sign. I still do that at gigs sometimes, every now and then. How about Buddy Guy. Yeah, yeah, I like Buddy Guy too. Yeah, yeah. Albert Collins, the yeah, Ice wicked. Man. Wow. Mr. Telecaster, but then, but then of course, you know, and, and, but then of course it, 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 it started, a, things started to change for me. The next guitar player that really blew my socks off was Larry Carlton, you know, and, and, you know, the, still we've got, I've got to still say that the, the solo from Kid Charlemagne is, you know, well, arguably amongst the 10, I like the top five greatest guitar solos ever. So you were um, 
you've obviously got you got your guitar playing and your singing underway when you was a kid. Is this where Brian comes in? Was you at school with Brian? Is that yeah, right? yeah, we, yeah, we were at, we were at Hampton down the road. Yeah, it, when it was a grammar school, because nowadays you have to, I think you have to fork out to go there, and uh, that would have been out. So my mum and dad were just working class, you know. And I mean, we that would have been. I got a scholarship there, well, and uh, and that would have been out of their league. In fact, they were they were they were as proud as punch when I got to Hampton, and when I discovered when I decided to become a musician, their dreams collapsed. Like a card house, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'll bless them. But they they turned out all right. I mean, they 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 got scripts with it. I mean, post 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 war post Second World War parents, pr- the pre boomer generation. I mean, they they had such a tough time for six years that that it took them a long time, I think, to settle down and be confident about. What their what the prospects of life might be, you know. I mean, they were they were they were post Victorians. Effectively, they'd gone through a situation. They'd gone through a century where there'd been two major wars, where the sort of general peaceful progress of culture had been interrupted, and so they were still they were still inherently Victorians because mm-hmm. they they they'd inherited their their Victor, their Victorian parents sensibilities as regards what what culture is what society is and they were just reiterating it you know uh but they they but they you know they realized they realized what the world is later on i find a lot of um i read a lot of autobiographies about musicians and yeah. like you say your parents and that generation was definitely worried about the next lot going forwards especially when they say music or art there was an instant fear between all those parents <laughs> yeah 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 sure sure there was i mean that my dad didn't take me seriously as a musician at all mum t- mum did because mum did because she was but that much more perceptive you know if that's what you want to do son you've got to work hard at it and the, whereas dad said are oh, you can't play the guitar you just drum it <laughs> And so, uh, but dad that is playing the guitar <laughs> anyway what did transpire i think was that that they the, the early six well the 60s being a a effectively a, a, a multifaceted cultural revolution i mean it affected everybody mm. and uh, and i and although they may not have enjoyed the the prospect initially because it it flew in the face of their, as, as I say, of their post-Victorian sensibilities. They kind of came round. I mean, I think one of the interesting things was that I went to the States in the early 70s, right at the turn of the 70s. And what was peculiar to me was that I left a country whose middle class, lower and middle classes were contemptuous of its youth, of its youth culture. And I ended up in the States. I ended up in Florida for four months in the midst of a society where the lower and middle classes were entirely encouraging of the culture of their youth. I mean, that I stayed with a family and the parents said, oh my God, you play guitar. Hey, would you want to rehearse in our living room? <laughs> and I, I would, you know, and I, I, what? You know, whereas, whereas all I'd have to do would be to, a triangle in my front room at home in Teddington, and my dad was like, "Try that, 
<laughs> it's amazing. I remember watching something about Brian, and he said it wasn't till he played Madison Square Garden, his dad went, "Oh, I get it now." <laughs> well, I, 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 I think that must be. That's the one thing. I mean, you know, I have, I have. I, there's no doubt about it. I've, I've been envious of their success. I, I was thinking about it yesterday. I was thinking about the fact that I haven't. I, I, I don't. I don't. I never really felt destructively jealous, but I was. I was. I was kind of. I was pretty envious of it, admittedly, because because after all, when we started out, that was the that was the that was the model that we were striving for. On reflection, looking at the kind of lifestyle that I know they've led, I don't know that I'd have enjoyed it quite so much. And not because, not for any sour grapes or anything, but just because I think I'm a different kind of person and, and I used to hate touring anyway. So I don't know that I'd ever have got used to it. Maybe I, maybe I would have done, you know. But, but I, I think, I think the one thing I do regret is the very fact that for Brian to be able to show to his dad the degree to which he'd been successful is something I was never able to do. And I think that in itself is, it was something that I, that I, I am deeply envious of, you know. But you got to make records that most kids didn't. So you still, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I mean, it's funny contrasting the experience then and the experience now. I mean, and and to be honest with you, you know, the gap between, which one might loosely say was from the the eighty, the late seventies, say say nineteen eighty to two thousand. So there was a twenty year period when I was only dabbling, and on either side of that period, I was recording and uh, and and gigging as well. But the two. Now, in the previously, there was, you could, previously, prior to 1980, you could harbor the, the aspiration of being able to make a lot of money. You could have that aspiration. And, and it wasn't outrageously high in the sky, at least not, not for me, because, because I was kind of clearly, I, I was clearly a, a nearly made it, but I was close, you know, I was close to having, if I'd have stuck with it, probably would have made it as a as a, a mid mid range player performer. Might have lasted ten fifteen years, maybe I don't know. But after the millennium, after the millennium, all bets are off. There's no way you can make any money out of music these days. I no. mean, you know, I, I mean, I look at talking about talking about Young Guns, Silver Fox. Now there's a modern band, you know, and but you look at Spotify, and they are, and they've got. They've got four or five million streams on each of their tracks. You know, phenomenal. I mean, I've got half a million on one of my tracks, which is a Queen track. Surprise, surprise. And then the rest of my tracks have got two and three thousand streams. You know, so it, so clearly, so clearly, it's not the legacy's not enough. You've got to, the thing about uh, Young Girl Silver Foxes. They put the legwork in. They tour. You know, they make more albums than I do. They have got a record company, they've got a German record company, they have got financial backing, you know, and and so and they're and they're off to a start. I mean, wish I'd wish to God I could get um 
I could get some, you know, that kind of number of streams and that kind of profile for the, for the music itself, because I'm wanting it. If there's one thing that I have self-belief in, it's my songs. You know, I do actually believe quite strongly in the, in the quality of my songwriting. Yeah. I mean, I was reading the other day, um, Pete Frampton, I think it was Baby I Love The Way, had 55 million streams, but he only made 1,700 quid out of it. I'm not surprised. 1984, your first band with Brian. Well, it was the first one that did gigs, yeah. I mean, we we dabbled with little, little outfits, you know, here and there. I don't, don't think we might have done a party in in one of the earlier outfits but they were they were so embryonic as to not even ever have had names actually no that's not true no, i think there was one little group of uh, we had called the railroaders i i just seem to remember that was also a couple of a couple of hampton boys plus maybe some couple of lads from witten and we might have done like, some simple blues and we might have done a party but that's a vague recollection and may not have any substance whatsoever 1984 we used to gig quite regularly at the Vesta Rowing Club in Putney no not the Vesta Rowing Club the Thames Rowing Club on the embankment at Putney we used to do that every few weeks on a Saturday night get paid a tenner for it I think that probably two quid each I mean you know wow <laughs> you know well well it two quid was Two quid was was two quid. I mean, when I left college in 69, the first job I had, which was in a drawing office doing a mail-order catalogue, I was only getting 11 quid a week. Wow. You know, that's for a full-time job. Um, but it was average, you know. I mean, we aspired to 20 quid a week. You know. Blimey. I remember I was watching something about Jeff Lynn and he was making more money than his dad. And he said to his mum, Oh, I'm going to go on tour. And he happened to draw and all this money. And she said, where'd you steal that from? <laughs> <laughs> she didn't think he'd earned it. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So were you, were you writing in 1984 at the time? Were you getting into songwriting at that time? Well, the, the thing is that just to slightly refer to back to the, the legacy of the blues, one of the legacies of the blues for, for young bands have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. In the early 60s was that the 12 bar, the 12 bar blues, which is absolutely common, a common format which mm. is so easy to play, you could do it in your sleep, was, was often the kind of bulk of people's repertoire in their set list was just a load of 12 bars. And there are so many 12 bars around. I mean, even Billy Jean is a 12 bar, unless I'm very much mistaken. And, it, <laughs> and it's lasted to this day. You know, 12 bars are easy to play, but 
and but but eventually people got tired of of white boy blues covers, you know, and and um, and so it became incumbent on everybody to start writing their own material. Everybody was getting anxious about writing their own. You got to write your own material. Got to be self penned. And I think Brian and I first collaborated on Step On Me, which was, is that on, is that on the Smile album? It is, yeah. Is it? God blimey. Um, yeah, yeah, and Doing All Right. Those mm. were the first two that we collaborated on. And, and from that moment on, I don't think we, we didn't, I think that kind of broke the, that broke the duck, as it were, that, that. That opened the floodgates. Well, it didn't exactly open the floodgates, but it it, it opened the sluice gates. So a chink, uh, so a little bit of water came through. And then, uh, and then one summer, I think it was the summer of '68. I was just getting so, I've got to write something. I've got to write something. So I ended up writing Earth, and and that was it. Once I'd written Earth, I never stopped, and I'm still writing now. I mean, obviously, I'm still writing. Is there's something cathartic about writing, even if you're not, even if you're not writing personally poignant songs? Mm. I mean, uh, and and I reckon I, I reckon I do write personally poignant songs, but but they're about it's about fifty percent I think, of, and then fifty percent are just fantasy or, yeah. or, or or you know I mean so, sometimes sometimes fantasy with a with a felicity philosophical or political point i hope <laughs> obviously all of them are obviously as naive as hell mm. but you know but it, it's just something but they're still cathartic you know i i've learned that i've learned that rather than take offense at someone on facebook and answering them with a with a with a broad a trolling broadside mm. the best thing to do is say nothing ignore it and write a song <laughs> you know? Song is my my way of trolling the human race. <laughs> <laughs> so was was Roger in the band at this point, or was this only when Smile was formed? No, Roger was in. Uh, was it the reaction? No, were they were they called the reaction? Was it oh. Ibex as well? That was the other one. Ibex was Freddie's band. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah Ibex and and Sal Milk Seed were Freddie's band. Ibex were they were. I can't remember where the connection came from, but they were from they were from Liver. They were up Liverpool way. I think they were. They, it may have something to do with Ealing College, with some of the connections at Ealing College, because we had some Yorkshire lads at Ealing College, and there may have been, as, and as well as some Liverpool lads. So I think maybe the connection with Freddie that got him into Ibex was, came from there. And then Sour Milk Sea was a bit later on, but Roger was playing in a band in Truro. I think it was called Reaction. Roger, I'm very sorry. I've got the name wrong, but he was, but you know, they were successful. They were a gigging band as well. And then, and as you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's common knowledge that, that Brian and I left 1984 when, when it, when, when we moved into tertiary education and the rest of the band, the rest of the band went, went to the provinces, to the U- university of the provinces. There's only Brian and I that stayed in London. Mm. I went to Ealing to do graphics, which is where I met Freddie. And Brian went to Imperial College to study astronomy, which is how he comes to um, have uh, that, that connection with with space and, and, and all that. Although Brian and I did have, have always had a, we, we, one of the things that 
that kind of connected us together was the fact that that I'd always been an armchair astronomer myself, <laughs> and, and so we, and so a lot of what he, a lot of what he talks about astronomy wise, uh, maybe not on the, on not not on the applied physics side of it, but on the on the general side of it, I do understand. So there was that connection as well as the musical connection. Is it right? Roger played bongos when he auditioned as well. He didn't actually have a full kit. Roger. I don't, uh, I said no, no, I don't think so. I think he had a kit. I think oh. he, his kit down into the into the flat at wherever it was, Addison Gardens, was it? Uh, you know, the, well, one thing I will say is that that there are aficionados of the history out there. People I don't know, people who have made a habit or a, made a study of every minutiae of detail about their life, which, which, uh, who know so much more than I do, you know, and but actually people do say to me, oh, yes, oh, yeah, blah, blah. And, and I, I look blankly and say, oh, really? Because, <laughs> because the thing is, you, you, you don't, you do, well, I, I've never, I, I'm, I don't know, I've never kept anything. It's like, it's like, cause you know, I was, you know, the other, the other thing, you know, I was, a, I worked on Tommy, the tank engine. Mm. Uh, people are always saying to me, "Oh, have you got any of the engines? Have you got any of the? Have you got any of the props? Have you got any of the bits?" Please, no, I haven't. I wasn't <laughs> allowed to take them home. I wasn't allowed to have any of them. There's a thing called copyright, you know. And people do expect more of you than than you than you possess, you know. Um, uh, I think you know, in all in all sorts of areas, really, both in the in the intellectual and in the in, and in the physical, I mean, I I do feel guilty sometimes that 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 people, I mean, people, you know, people have sometimes people send me envelopes with full of photographs of myself taken off the internet, black and white photographs from years ago. You know, the, yeah. the classic ones that you've seen outside the Albert Hall with the with <clears> the <throat> smile and and. And they asked me to sign dozens of them and send them back in mm. a step to dress envelope. Well, I see no reason why I shouldn't do that. I mean, it, it's it's no pro- it's no big deal, really. It's no problem for me. But I ca- I don't understand where the motivation comes from. I can understand it when it comes to get, put, get, grabbing Brian at the end of a gig with an album and saying, "Will you sign my album?" But every successful rock band in the world has got a bloke who left just before they became famous. <laughs> so how is it that you send, how is it that you send, you know, wads of pictures of of them to themselves and ask for their signature? <laughs> that to me is peculiar. It's, it's weird. weird. Yeah. It's very strange. You know, I remember years ago I had a bootleg of the smile EP because it was all bootlegs back in the day, wasn't it? And I played it again recently just to refresh my memory with it. And I'm amazed at how straight away the sort of early Queen sound was there, but also the, how strong the songwriting was on that EP. So I thought yeah. it, was a, it was a really strong EP. When I was listening to it, I thought, actually, these songs are really, really good. They're not just sort of, you know, the bit before yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody, blah, blah, blah. I was like, these songs are fantastically written. They're brilliant. So did you have a, an idea at the time that they were good or was it just right? We're just going to smash this demo out and move on. I always thought Step On Me was a great song. I always thought Doing All Right was a pretty good song, although it's really difficult to perform as a single artist, I can tell you. 
Um, <laughs> well, because people keep asking for it, you know, and it's it's hard. It's hard because it. It's hard because it requires a band. It's a band song. It's not an acoustic guitar song because there are too many changes. Mm. So it interferes with the continuity of the song itself. Anyway, that's beside the point. And I also thought Earth was a good song too, mm. even if it was mine. And I also thought April Lady was a good song. Yeah. Can't remember what else was on there. Polar Bear. Polar Bear. And Polar Bear was a good song. And Blag, I wasn't so keen on, although people love it. And it, mm. although it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, um, it's just a belter, you know, it's, it's just basically a belter with, with very little substance, it seems to me. But yeah, I think if anything, I think the problem with that was that it was too eclectic. There were, t- the, 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 the variety of songs was too difficult, was too, and, and we didn't, we didn't clearly know how to produce them in those days because we were just a, we were a little rock trio with harmonies, every rock trio with harmonies. Right, how do we do these songs? Well, we do them like that. Right, okay, fine. And we tried to fit them all into the same mould. And that, looking back in retrospect, it wasn't the right thing to do. Polar Bear should have been, should have been done differently. Polar Bear could have done with some strings. Polar Bear probably could have done with the piano as a basic instrument, not the guitar. But, but we did them the way they did. Earth, Earth was probably better off as an acoustic guitar with, with an accompaniment behind it. Fine, that's fine. The other two, Step On Me worked as a, worked as the band and so did Doing All Right. And so did April Lady, I think. And Blag was just a, as I say, was a belter. So, I don't know. I mean, the, uh, I'm, I, all I'm really doing is applying contemporary sensibilities to those tunes. But I suppose my answer to your fundamental answer to your question is, yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. They were quite good songs, weren't they? And I great. If anything, that it's just it's just the primitive treatment that the elementary treatment that lets them down. If anything does, you know. I mean, you say that, but I think doing all right, the smile version is better than the Queen version. I think it's it's it it suits the song better. I think on Queen one they attack it too hard, and I think the way Smile did it was it was a lovely flow of a song. Where I think the other way it was too disjarring for me. Just, that's just me. Well, well that's exactly you're, that's exactly my my. I, you know, I I, don't, I can't really differ. I don't really know what Queen's version is actually like. I mean, it's a, I, I'm not I'm not that familiar with this. I haven't listened to a great deal of Queen to be honest mm. with you over the years. I've listened to some, loved lots of it, you know, but I, but I'm not that familiar with their version. But that's my point about doing all right. Is the it's the it's a song that. That it's so important that the continuity stays throughout the entire song, and that it doesn't, and it's not disjointed because there are three distinct sections of that song, and they all have different accented rhythms. And unless somehow they have a unifying factor all the way through, they they come across as being disjointed. Yeah, it's quite right. Yeah, yeah. And I've noticed as well on Earth, there's an element of flash in there with the kick drum work. I thought, oh, Roger just copied himself about 10 years later. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously, because I was having you on, when I get a guest on, I'm really interested in all their career. So I try and listen to as much stuff up to it as I can. So I did listen to Humpy Bong. Oh, yeah. Um, Don't You Be Too Long was the song I I found. Yeah. And what amazed me was about, I found it to be really country influenced with the guitar picking and stuff. It seemed to be a country song almost. It is. Yeah, it definitely is. Well, the, 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 the weird thing about my career after Smile was that that 
I, I met Jonathan Kelly. That, now, I met Jonathan Kelly because I answered an audition for Humpy Bond, which was Colin Peterson's band. Now, the reason I joined Humpy Bond was because I, I kind of, I, I think I was responding to the fact that Peterson had been the BG's drummer. And, you know, you, you tend to go where you think there might be a bit of clout. Mm. I mean, that, you know, uh, oh, this might be a good career move for me. Cause I'd had, I'd had other things. I'd, I'd gone for, I'd, I'd go, I'd auditioned for musicals. I went to, I, I'd, I'd got several jobs with different bands and I, I got every single audition I, I went for, including musicals, you know, but when the Humpy Bong one came along, I just thought, that it might have been a, it might be more of an astute career move for me. Well, it shows how wrong that was. But I did meet Jonathan Kelly, and and Kelly John Leddingham was. I wasn't prepared for the fact that you meet you meet people in your life whose influence is absolutely seminal in the sense that you they open your intellect up, and Kelly opened my intellect up to things that I it had been shut down from for years because he basically uh, a gentle super intelligent irishman of which i know the whole of ireland is full of intelligence and i know that for a fact whose understanding of politics of literature of philosophy was far beyond my own he suddenly made me feel inferior and not he didn't intend to make me feel inferior i just withdrew on myself and became reflective for a period of five years and or maybe maybe slightly less than that and but for me that was a good thing because i started to i started to revisit things elements of culture that i never had before uh, for instance from through kelly's influence i started to read book proper books proper literature i started to read things that i would have neglected to uh, i started to I started to see films. I started to understand culture more more than anything else. And to me, it was an incredibly important period of time. And the essence of Crumpy Bomb was that it was a country band. It was a country folk band. He was a folk singer. He was an Irish folk singer. There's, uh, you know, the tradition of Irish show bands is that it's a kind of a pale shadow of Nashville. And, and that was, don't you be too long, it has a, has a country, a, a distinct country feel. I, what I think about it is, I think my vocal is really good on it. Mm, yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, I think that I'd gone from being a, I'd gone from being a relatively undisciplined heavy rock singer in, in the, in the style of, in possibly in the style of Robert Plant and, and, and other people of, the, of that ilk, and I was I was coming out of that. I was I was moving into the world of songwriting, and I and I had to know what to do with my vocal. And clearly, I had to change the style. I clearly had to change the 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 the, the aspect of it, which I'm not. I don't know whether I was quite there yet with Daddy B too long, but I was on the way. I wanted to say that paradoxically. I then joined Morgan, which was the other end of the spectrum altogether, which was a prog rock band. Now, why did I go from a band that start that was understanding the grooves that I wanted to work with into a prog rock band where the groove was probably less evident than it had even been in Smile? I, I, and I, I, I the, it was a paid gig. 
was one of the reasons. But the other reason was I soon got very intrigued by the idea that, that I, I could work as a librettist effectively, that, I, that Morgan Fisher, whose m- music was complex and multi-time-signatured, was sending me these pieces over and asking me to write lyrics to them. And it was the, absolutely was the best. It was the University of Lyrics, it was. It really was, because, because suddenly I was getting these amazing tunes that, that I hardly knew what to make sense of. And, and, and it was suddenly becoming incumbent on me to write lyrics that, you see, I've always thought with lyrics that you've got to, they've got to have some colloquial connection with the people that are likely to listen to them. You, yeah. you can go nuts if you like and, and, and write pompous stuff that, that has, you know, pro, the kind of prose that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't use in everyday life. But I've always thought that you should, you really need to try and write in conversational English or at least colloquial English. And so I was getting this stuff with these disjointed melody lines and thinking to myself, I've got to, I've got to translate this into, into some kind of colloquial English. And I think, I, I think it was an incredible training because I think it worked in a lot of instances. Bit stilted. I keep thinking of the right, is it the blind owl politician with his celebrated smile, a piano keyboard ivory. With each key neatly filed, was molded from a snapshot of someone with a grin, with just a touch of Oscar Wilde thrown in. Seems to me that that's colloquially accessible. Mm. You know, I, am I deluding myself? No, not at all. Maybe no. I am. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> I was amazed that, like, I know you joined Morgan, and I'd not listened to Morgan until the other day, so last week actually. So I, I found some albums and was playing those. And it's one of those things where straight away I was like, well, that's early Genesis and that's early Yes and all these bands. But why had I not heard of Morgan? Why in these? Why why did they not sort of get to that level? Don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, that I've heard it. I've heard the Morgan albums referred to as the forgotten gems of prog mm. rock, you know, and and I, I was not so sure about Nova Solis, but the the second one, the Sleep Awakes, or the original mm. title was Brownout. I mean, Sleep Awakes, I, I I'd hold that up against anything. Yeah, you know, it, it it's uh, I, I think it's a terrific piece of work, and we were also and we were beginning because. Morris Bacon, who's the drummer, who I'm still very friendly with him. In fact, I've organised a curry with him for October the 10th. Um, Morris Morris knew the the importance of the groove as a drummer, you know, and, I mean, he'd come out of Love Affair, obviously. They'd all come out of Love Affair, and and they were kind of finding their way into a more more, uh, intellectually respectable musical form. And... And because Morgan was writing this sort of Bartok-esque stuff, it was a bit difficult rhythmically for Morris to get to grips with it. But for the second album, I think it it uh, it, it was he nailed it. And the 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 track "What Is Is What," this really great sort of 
there's some great stuff on there that I, I, I loved listening to it. I, 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 I do like listening to it again now. I still do. <laughs> I think well, I'm going to put links to all this stuff in the description so people can hear this stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. I think it is forgotten gems. Like you said, can we talk about your last album, Wayward Child? Is that all right? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Because I was listening to, to that the other day, and yet again, we was talking about with the smile demo, like a, a nice flow to an album. You're, that album definitely has it. Yeah, I love the track "Everybody Surrenders" because it reminds me of Steely Dan. <laughs> I got to be honest. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, that, well, that, how could I? How could I hope for a better compliment? You know, <laughs> I, I mean, now the way that the way that came together was that uh, it started off with the riff. It was a da 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 da. And, and and it all came out of that, you know, that because uh, it's rather an odd rhythm, and um, but for you to to uh, like to associate it with Steely Dan is I'm I'm puffed up with pride, frankly. I mean, uh, you know, the Dan the Dan are to me the Dan are the last word in rock. You know, I I I, I can't I, if I'd if I'd written if I'd written God. Well, if any, if I'd written any of their stuff, mostly I'd have been, you know, I'd have thought that was it, you know. But, uh, but anyone, um, anyone that knows, listens to the podcast, which everybody knows, I'm a huge Dan fan. But there was definitely elements in that song where the changes were Dan esque. I'm not saying you, like, obviously, you didn't steal it, but they're Dan esque. And I was like, wow, Dan. this. Yeah. You know, there is a there is a tribute band called Stealing Dan, <laughs> <laughs> which is great, isn't it? That's so great. No, I mean, I, I'm. I, I never, I never, I, any any plagiarism or 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 borrowing has been entirely subconscious in anything I've ever done because I never ever sat down and consciously tried to learn something from somebody. You know, I've always just plucked it out the air. You know, I I I, uh, I I'm not the greatest guitar player in the world, but I think I'm quite an interesting guitar player um, because I just don't think I'm like anybody else. Sometimes that's a failing, I think, but, but, you know, a lot of the time it's, it's, um, it, a lot of the time it's, it's, um, it's fairly bulletproof. I'll have a link to the album in the description as well. Yeah. So what's next for you? Is it going to be a new album? Is it going to be touring? Well, you probably know I'm working with, uh, I have also worked with Paul Stewart, who was, who, who, who back in the day was also a student at, at Hampton and he was the lead singer with the others who were the, who were the, who were the band that we aspired to be, that 1984 aspired to be. And it's been great fun working with him because he was always a great singer as well, and he writes too. And so we've done one album, which is on Spotify, which is the um, How High album. And I think the next thing is I've got a bunch of songs ready. I think the next thing is another Staffel and Stewart album. I, I, I think it's time to do that. And because and we do feel the little band, we have a... We have a we have a small band that we play around, and we the gigs are only uh, are humble gigs, you know. But but it's a lot of fun, and and I I think that's what we're going to do. I think it's another album there. But then beyond that, I don't know. But, but mainly because I, it's not that it's not that I I think I will do another album called Providing I Survive. Because <laughs> well, you know, how long much longer have I got? You know, I'm seventy seventy five. You know. I mean, a long time. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be nice to think? I mean, to think so. I mean, at the moment, the songs I've been writing seem to me to to favour the our little band, which is kind of on the edge of Americana. 
it, it, you know, I don't like the word Americana because it means that people from Hounslow think they are from the bayou, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I don't, I don't buy that, <laughs> you know, um, but, uh, but it is, but it's definitely, it's definitely still has, it's, it's, when we go out, I tend to uh, put a, put on the posters, I, I tend to say a flavor of the blues because I don't want to approach. It's cultural appropriation. I, I, you know, there's a lot of bands around who just do dead straight copies of old blues, you know, and white middle class guys, you know, I, which I, which I have trouble with. I've got to say, I have a bit of trouble with that. And, um, but, but still, there's no denying, you know, we are doing tracks. We, we our live show does, we do things like bring it on home. Sam Cook's bring it on home. We do, we do a kind of a Santana version of Spoonful. All the, these are on the these are on the, the How High album, and we do and we do a lot of our own stuff as well. But it is it does have a, it does have leanings towards Americana. But honestly, we're not appropriating your culture, people. <laughs> I promise. If if people want to find out like about you and the band, where's the best place to go for that? Well, can I go to just go to my Facebook page or my Instagram, or and I, or else I turn up on TikTok every now and then. Um, every week, I think I turn up. <laughs> talking, talking about i don't know songs words you know guitars anything and everything really it's been an absolute pleasure chatting today thanks so much for your time oh, it's been really great thank you very much Just
Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.